Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the new home liturgy. That's right, you've made it to the NHL. Uh, last week, we uh, named both the weirdness and the unique challenges of the moment we're in and how these things are being experienced individually as well as collectively. And all this change and newness and uncertainty and loss brings stress, it brings anxiety, it brings grief, it's a hard time. And we said that in the midst of such times, it's important to be reminded of what hasn't changed, what can be counted on. So when everything seems to be shifting, where can we find a solid footing? I noted how our situation in some ways mirrors what was going on in 1 John. There was conflict and confusion within this early Christian community about what was most important. And John was writing to remind them of what they've known to be true from the beginning, that God is love, that we see this most clearly in Jesus, and that in Christ we become God's love. This week, we get to talk about sin. Yay! So just as love and God are huge concepts that often get confused, twisted, distorted, sin is another word that we have a hard time understanding. So a friend of mine who recently preached on this same text had the idea of doing a sin quiz, and I thought it was brilliant. So I'm stealing it with her permission. Thank you, Bobby Salkelt. So this is a sin quiz that's really easy and non-threatening because you don't have to tell everyone your answers. You just answer in your head. I'm going to offer five statements, and you need to decide whether they're true or false. Okay? So you're ready for the sin quiz. <laughs> so true or false, sin is the disorder of desires. True or false, sin is the loss of original goodness. True or false, sin maintains that there is nothing righteous in a person. True or false, sin is found in systems that diminish human flourishing. True or false, sin is the attempt to live for oneself rather than God or one another. So, how was that for you? Did you connect with any of these? On the other hand, was there a sense that maybe some aspects of a definition don't sit as well with you anymore as they once did? Well, here's the thing. These definitions aren't just pulled out of the air. They represent major movements in the history of Christian theology when it comes to our ideas about sin. It was St. Augustine who emphasized sin as the disorder of desires. It was Thomas Aquinas who focused on sin as the loss of original goodness. It was Martin Luther who insisted that there is nothing righteous in a person. It was liberation theologians who shifted the emphasis to systems that oppress as opposed to just individual acts of wrongdoing. It's thinkers in the 20th century, such as Karl Barth, who defines sin as the attempt to live for oneself rather than God or one another, adding that Jesus is the mirror who reflects the truth of our condition back to us. So here's Bobby's summary and invitation, which I also want to hold out to us as well. She said, definitions shift and change over time, and Christian thought is remarkably flexible to meet the needs of its day. So as we continue in 1 John, I invite you to leave some space for your own ideas about sin to change.
with that, let's hear our text together. It's from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. So hopefully it's apparent to us now why we did the sin quiz. If you were counting, sin or some variation of the word is mentioned about nine times in this passage. So I want to take a good amount of time to explore sin in its broader scriptural context. But before we do that, let's start where our text does in verse five. What is the core message that's been heard from the beginning and is now being announced? It's that God is light. So light here is, of course, a metaphor. God is not literally light. So we need to ask how or in what sense is God light? And in the New Testament, light symbolizes a whole bunch of things. Life, goodness, openness, truth. God's kingdom or the realm of God's effective reign is said to be one of light and Jesus himself, the light of God's revelation to the world. Then it says that in God there is no darkness at all. I want to encourage us to take care not to take this metaphor too far. So darkness, even for the biblical authors, is not always bad. Take Genesis 1. Darkness is not dismissed as evil. God made two great lights, it says there, the larger to govern the day and the smaller to govern the night. And God saw that it was good. Through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. In Psalm 97, verse 2, the psalmist says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. And Psalm 139, 11 and 12, the psalmist writes, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So with that cautionary backdrop, how exactly is John speaking about darkness when he says there's none of it in God? The context helps us a lot. Let's listen to verses 6 and 7 one more time. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So the author says God is light, in him there's no darkness at all, not to make a definitive, holistic, airtight definition of everything God is within God's self. 
but to provide a basis for ethical application. So if God is light in all the ways we said a moment ago, then those who really know God will walk in the light. They will walk in ways that bring life to themselves and others. They'll walk in hope. They'll walk in goodness. They'll walk in truth. They'll walk in the light of the kingdom. They'll walk in and with Jesus. On the other hand, says John, if we don't live our lives in this way while claiming to share common purpose with God, we lie. We do not do the truth, which is actually how that phrase reads literally, kind of like that, do the truth. When we do do the truth, though, there are two results. One is fellowship with each other, koinonia. We looked at this word a bit last week. Common purpose, communion, same-pageness. The other is the Jesus remedy for all our sin. So there's that sin word again. So what I want to attempt is a bit of a deep dive into how I think scripture speaks about sin, and I'm hoping that will help us grasp our text with a bit more clarity. And so to do this, I'm going to take a page out of John's approach and call our attention toward that which was from the beginning, the very beginning of Hebrew scripture, the book of Genesis. Why? Because to understand sin properly, we need to understand who we are. To get the what right, we need to get the who right. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tell us we are made in the image and likeness of God. The very stuff of our existence is generative love, which means we begin from a foundationally hopeful place. And the older I get, the more I think it's impossible to overstate this. One writer put it this way, if this is true, it says that our family of origin is divine. Our core is original blessing, not original sin. This says our starting point is totally positive, or as the first chapter of the Bible says, it is very good. We do have someplace good to come home to. If the beginning is right, the rest is made considerably easier. Plus, we know the clear direction of the tangent. And so the Bible is just going to build out in concentric circles from that starting point with its many stories. What they're attempting to do is to illustrate our objective unity with God, to borrow a phrase from Richard Rohr. I've been helped a lot by his thinking, and so I want to share it with you. We're going to do a lot of that this morning. So I'm going to go out a limb here and say I think the Reformation got a few things wrong. There is much that the European reformers got right, and I'm grateful. But when people who supposedly trust in the scriptures give us such disastrous starting places as total depravity, it's no wonder many Western people have zero bandwidth for Christianity. To know the good news, to walk in the light, we have to get the who right. So what is the self, again, we're working with? Where did you and I come from? Is our DNA divine or is it satanic? If it's divine, as the scriptures clearly seem to indicate, then what if the entire human family is not separate from God? What if the separateness we assume to be our default state is actually an illusion? And what if the primary task of the biblical writers is to help us overcome the illusion of separateness? to reconnect people to their original identity, which Paul says is hidden with Christ in God. Scripture calls this state of separateness 
sin. And its complete undoing is basically God's job description. A couple chapters ahead in 1 John, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved ones, we are now already God's children. It hasn't yet been revealed what we are going to be. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The word sin carries so many connotations that are the opposite of helpful. For many, it does not imply a state of alienation or separateness. Instead, it means bad behaviors and personal moral unworthiness. So what's important is not to confuse symptoms with the actual state. If you and I believe we're disconnected from God, we're going to do dumb things. If I imagine I'm on my own and I have to look out for myself only, I'm going to be greedy. If I don't believe I'm fully loved as I am, I won't want to be vulnerable or share my life with others. I will only live to serve my own needs. These are symptoms of not seeing ourselves as being in union with the God who is love. But it's the state of believed or chosen autonomy that we need to deal with. One core definition of sin is any life lived outside the garden. I like also what Frederick Buechner wrote about sin. He said, the power of sin is centrifugal. When at work in a human life, it tends to push everything outward toward the periphery. Bits and pieces go flying off until only the core is left. And eventually, bits and pieces of the core itself go flying off until at the end, nothing at all is left. The wages of sin is death is St. Paul's way of saying the same thing. Other people, and if you happen to believe in God, God, or if you happen to not to, the world, society, nature, whatever you call the greater whole of which you're a part, sin is whatever you do or fail to do that pushes them away, that widens the gap between you and them and also the gaps between yourself or within yourself. So that's Buechner. And in other words, sin is mainly describing a state of living outside of union. It's when a part poses as the whole. It's the loss of any inexperience of who you are in God, which is a who you can't earn or obtain or accomplish or work towards. Why? Because you've already got it. Now, if our DNA is divine, if our beginning is positive, and hopeful, and our core is original blessing, we of course know that we are also a mixed blessing. We're a bundle of contradictions. We know this, but it's hard to accept it. Maybe that's behind what some of the opponents of John or the Johannine community are on about when they are claiming to be without sin. It's just hard to accept. But we all know that feeling that there's this tragic flaw in the center of who we are. Greek and Shakespearean tragedy reflect it. Paul says it painfully, heartbreakingly in Romans 7. Even so, when we use the word sin, we almost always think of personal fault. But the meaning of original sin is that you are not at fault for it. What's crucial for us to recognize is that a wound is there and that all people share in it, just as all people share in the divine DNA. So we share the wound and we share God's image and likeness. We're mixed blessings. So given all this, how might we understand the fall in Genesis 3? I want to invite us to think of the fall 
not as something that happened just in one historical moment to Adam and Eve, but as something that happens in all moments and in every life. It was the mystic Julian of Norwich who said, first the fall and then the recovery from the fall and both are the mercy of God. What does she mean? Well, if you've lived a while, you know this. It's when you fall down, it's when you trip up, it's when you mess up that we learn almost everything that matters in a spiritual sense. As Jesus often teaches in his parables, you have to lose it or at least know you don't have it before you can find it and celebrate it. Read all of Luke 15 for more on that. Consider the story of Adam and Eve now and imagine how your own life is intertwined with theirs. They begin in this beautiful place, this beautiful beginning of objective unity with God. And so the evil one comes in imaged as a snake and introduces suspicion about that fact. This is where the unraveling begins as suspicion does in all relationships, right? Think of it. All it takes is someone telling you one bad thing about another person and that gets us going, our minds working overtime to fit all these pieces into the narrative that we've constructed. It all starts with the planting of doubt. Suspicion will always find evidence for what it suspects. Then the text says, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. We could call this primal shame, which we all seem to have in some form. That deep sense of not quite measuring up, being insecure, separate, judged, and apart. Father Rohr says, it's almost the human condition, yet it takes a thousand disguises. It creates the yearning for divine re-communion. He continues by saying this, there really is no medicine for this existential shame apart from someone who really knows all of me and loves me anyway. One who knows me in my nakedness and loves me despite and maybe even because, as Therese of Lisieux believed. It is God who says to them, undoing their doubt, but who told you you were naked? God creates a doubt too, but in the opposite direction and in their favor. So then, a few verses later, Genesis 3 verse 21, we see God presented as a divine seamstress, an almost feminine image. It says, God sewed together clothes for them out of the skins of animals and they put them on. This is a picture of protective and nurturing God who takes away shame and self-loathing. It's a picture that will become the momentum building story of all of scripture, culminating in the work of Christ on the cross, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So with this, let's make an ever so brief return to our text and consider how we might respond. I'm gonna read a couple of verses and ask a question and then I'll do that once more. Verses eight and nine of chapter one. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What would it be like to stop living outside the garden? To stop lying to ourselves and others and to instead find courage to learn the art of confession. We know we're clothed in divine DNA. 
but we're often too scared to admit we fail, that we're mixed blessings. But loved ones, if we don't name that which leads us outside of union, we will be destroyed with, uh, by it. My friend Bobby said it really well. She said, that's what confession is for. It's release, it's accountability, it's admitting limitations and allowing love to outrun the very worst thing in your life. Chapter two, verses one and two. My dear, dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The fall is occurring as a daily reality in our lives. Sin is not a matter of if, but when. What would it be like to recognize how both our failings and our recoveries are together the mercy of God. And with this awareness to place ourselves joyfully, continually, and without fear before Jesus, the advocate, the paraclete, the one who solved the sin problem for good, not just for us, but for the whole world. Friends, as we come to the table this morning, may you find courage and grace to walk in the light of God, to know the gift of fellowship that comes from knowing you are God's children, one with God, made in God's very image and likeness. May you experience the liberty of confessing sin and the lightness that results from it, knowing it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. May you live in the core truths of 1 John, that God is love, that we see this most clearly in Jesus, and that in Christ, we get to extend the love of God to others.